The debate surrounding the settlement of the barbarians and the Western Roman Empire is one of the most hotly contested issues of the late antique period. This has been particularly apparent since the publication of Walter Gothard's 1980 book Barbarians and Romans AD 418-584, The Techniques of Accommodation. Before this, the consensus on the settlement of the barbarians was mainly based around the Roman quartering system of hospitalitas. This consensus developed from Gaup's 1844 work, said that barbarians received shares of land that had been divided into three. This was an extension of the Theodosian Code, describing the practice of building Roman troops on civilian land, hospitalitas. Consequently, this implied that the settlements involved a physical transfer of land. Gothard, starting with Ostrogothic Italy, offered a radical departure to this, suggesting that instead of receiving land, barbarian settlers were given a third of the usual tax revenues, specifically put aside for them. This was based on two key terms found in Cassiodorus's Varia, the first being Elatio Churchorum, Previously, this has been considered as a tax paid by those who were not County Ostenegov, and Goffer argued this term must be understood as referring to the aforementioned diverting general tax revenue. The second term, Melanori, which Goffer believed referred to unit of tax assessment that funded the payments to the Goffs. Before this, most interpretations thought the term referred to a commander of a thousand men. Gothard was therefore arguing that the barbarians were not given or rewarded with a share of the land, but instead with a share of the normal tax revenues of the state. With this podcast, I will just show that the large difference between the land and tax views in the debate can mainly be described to the highly scant and inconclusive nature of the evidence. In essence, it is a historiographical conundrum that raises questions about how the historian should interpret news evidence. This is not a new point. Gothard himself saw the implications of his argument for historians when he wrote, What's at stake in all of this is not one sympathy or antipathy towards barbarians, Germans or Goths, but rather a conception of how history on the modern marvel may be legitimately be assessed and written. However, I believe it is a seriously undeveloped part of the discussion surrounding the settlements. Secondly, by doing this, it will become clear that this debate is too centred around finding a single explanatory model for the barbarian settlements. It is often in danger of becoming mechanistic by trying to apply a single model to the different geographic and political contexts. More nuanced interpretations of the barbarian settlements do exist. For example, Housel has already made the case for moving beyond the and the text debate. In fact, Goffart himself sought to address some of the issues present in his argument when he returned to the debate in 2006. For example, saying that land could have had multiple means. I will send this discussion of the historiographical aspect of this debate in three sections. By focusing successfully on the settlement of the Ostrogoths, Visigoths, Burgundians and the Western Empire. Goffart Making out the technicalities of barbarian settlement start with Ostrogothic Italy. This was because, he argued, that the evidence for this area was the most contemporary in detail, 
One of his first steps was to try and demolish the evidence for land development found in Procopius's History of Wars. This is a case step. As if Procopius has taken out face value, the landed arrangement is shown quite clearly. He states, By giving a third of the land to the barbarians and risk way gaining their allegiance more firmly, he, referring to Ordica, had the supreme power for nearly ten years. This, of course, referring to the predecessor and early to the Austrian Gothic king Theodoric and his supposed grant of land. Gothard proposes a number of reasons to distrust the statement. Firstly, Procabius is from the Eastern Roman Empire and wished to describe Theodoracca as a tyrant, with him also respecting Theodoric. The handing over of lands to the barbarians, of course, being seen as a negative act. Secondly, he also suggests another possibility that Procopius is criticising the Roman practice of cooperating with the barbarians. These criticisms of Procopius are quite valid, and even some of Gothard's major opponents, such as Sam Barnish, distrust this statement as evidence of the landed settlement. Some, such as Peter Heather, in an article on Gothic ideology, suggested we must not be too quick to dismiss Procopius's source. The debate around whether we should trust him is in essence historiographical, raising the question about how much trust we should put in the source and how literal we should take it. Gothard, as shown in the introduction, goes, to use, goes on to use Cassiodorus's variant to develop a theory for the mechanics of barbarian settlement. Overall, his thesis is supported very well by the evidence found in these letters. Gothard's strongest piece of evidence is perhaps Varii 217, in which Theodoric instructs the local authorities of Trent to cancel the taxes for the land given to the priest Butilla. According to Gothard, this letter states that prior to the assignment of Butilla, the land was subject to ordinary taxation. But once he received it, it became tax-free. Now, in the possession of the Goth for tax revenue, Velasio usually set aside for the Goths was no longer necessary. Gothard also uses Varii 527 to support his thesis for settlement of Italy. Hodgkin's translation states the thousands of the men of Persinium and Samium suggesting that Gothic soldiers who served in the field should not lose their reward. Gothard takes a different interpretation of this passage, suggesting that the term millenine refers not to a captain of the thousands, but the collective term to which all Goths in these provinces are referred to as part of the process of receiving an annual tax revenue. The Varii can therefore be used to support Gothard's thesis, yet at the same time doing so leaves us with more questions about how we should approach the sources for the settlement of the Goths. Different viewpoints in the hospitality debate can often hinge on an interpretation of a single term or sentence in sources such as Vivari. This, of course, can be problematic. Should we take the meaning of text literally? Likewise, can a word mean something completely different in the context of another source? Furthermore, Gothard seems to place more trust in Cassiodorus than Procopius, but is his reasoning valid? As shown by Patrick Amory, the Verae themselves often often had an ideological purpose. What I am wanting to show 
by raising these questions here, as well, the debate on barbarian settlement is often based on technicalities and small pieces of evidence, and so therefore acts as a focal point for discussion on how history should be carried out. While Procopius and Bavari may be considered as direct pieces of evidence on the settlement of the Ostrogoths in Italy, there are a number of practical reasons and pieces of external evidence that suggest that a landed settlement in Italy is unlikely. If a landed assignment was made in Italy, the aristocracy would have deprived themselves of their own land and also their own wealth. There's little evidence for this, or any or evidence for any unrest, and the idea that a landed allotment would have been more favourable to the aristocracy if a land grant was the case does not seem more reasonable. Furthermore, the fact that we can say barbarians own land does not necessarily prove that they received it as part of a settlement agreement. Settlers could have used their income from the tax in order to buy land. This again raises a historical issue. In the context of Italy, the Arthur's thesis seems the most practical in contrast to the great harm the land settlement could have caused to the aristocracy. However, these assumptions are based on the absence of evidence or pragmatism. They are speculative, even if there appear as good reasons to believe in them. Once again, the debate over settlement of the barbarians of the Western Roman Empire forces us to encounter questions about how we should approach evidence and whether there is room for inferences around or outside its authors. Whereas the tax-based reward seems more likely for the settlement of Ostrogoths in Italy, it is harder to prove this for the settlement of the Visigoths in southern Italy. Housel suggests that the restricted leading for the settlement and also for the Burgundians makes Scoffard's thesis more plausible. This is where I would make a departure and suggest that the absence of our evidence actually makes a landed settlement more likely. Nevertheless, I still aim to vo- avoid a general or mechanistic view of the settlement in the Roman Empire, emphasising the land settlement in this instance only because of the context of the Gothic settlement. One of the major sources for the Visigothic settlement is the 5th century Code of Uruk, which is only accessible through the 7th century Visigothic Code. One can immediately identify that this poses lots of problems about whether we can trust this source, and it is easy to see why Gothard leaves it to after his discussion of Italy. Nevertheless, there are a number of statements in here that imply a landed settlement over a tax-based solution, even if they do so in a sketchy fashion. In 1117, the code describes the process of returning land to Romans from which they had been deprived. This seems to imply physical ownership rather than a unit of tax assessment. 10, 1, 8 to 9 presumes that disputes would arise over land ownership, but there's an absence of any specific references to differences between Romans and barbarians. 855 5. refers to the fact that travellers may have used land that had not been closed in and could be re- making a reference to the Roman system of hospitalities. The Code of Uric and Visigoth Code are therefore highly problematic when it comes to discussing the settlement of the Visigoths ago, even if our hints are a land settlement. With the evidence being so scarce, we are forced to ask if external context and evidence can be used to try and understand the mechanics of barbarian settlement. Perhaps the most convincing reason 
leave our land, the settlement would have been likely in goal, is because of the disadvantages of doing so would not have been as prominent in comparison to Italy. Most historians agree that the Visigoths settled the area the Visigoths settled in was disputing some sort of crisis. Kulakowski suggests the settlement of the Visigoths in Aquitania second means that the areas that had been recently supported usurpation were flanked by the imperial capital Arles and the Goths. Ben suggests the settlement must be understood in the context of Constantius trying to stabilise Gaul and Spain. The use of combined Roman and Gothic garrisons and the latter proved to be a bad idea. So the Visigoths, according to Burns, were settled back in southern Gaul. Nixon has, uh, has also used a range of literary sources to show the term present in this area at the time. Therefore, while historians do not agree on what exactly happened, it's clear that Gaul during the period of Visigothic settlement was experiencing some sort of political crisis. The landed settlement of the Visigoths in southern Gaul therefore makes sense as trying to bring the area back into the fold of imperial administration. This was perhaps short-sighted. For example, the Visigothic king Theodoric II would later support Avitus in his bid to become emperor. Nevertheless, the landed and physical settlement may have seen as more politically viable in a move at the time to recover lost territory. This, of course, once raises the question of whether we should use indirect evidence, but which does not mention the terms of the all mecha mechanics of barbarian settlement specifically, to help solve our historical conundrum. As we can see, very different conclusions can be made from this sort of evidence when we compare the settlement of gold to the settlement of Italy. This problem is made more difficult by the references in garlic sources of a period that could be used to imply a landed settlement, such as those found in the works of Sidonius Apollinaris, the Gallic Chronicle 452. We must be careful when using these, as they usually detail individual disturbances or settlements. All this forces us to ask whether it is possible that and to collate fragmentary and ambiguous pieces of evidence to create a wider narrative about the barbarian settlements. As can be seen, much of this will come down to how the story decides to approach the question of settlement and their choice of what is and what is not worthy evidence. Perhaps what we can learn from all this historiographical pondering is that discussing the settlement of the barbarians does not have an easy answer. But trying to find a mechanistic solution risks being overly simplistic. The settlement of the Burgundians and the Western Empire equally raises many questions about how we should approach the hospitalitas debate. Once again here, like the settlement of the Visigoths, the evidence is again sketchy. The main source for land settlements and businesses comes from the Burgundian Code, in particular titles 54 and 55, which belong to the Liber Constitutionum of 417. Much like the evidence from the Visigothic Code, some of the titles imply a land settlement quite heavily. Title 54 says, It was commanded at the time that the order was issued whereby our people should receive one-third of the slaves and two-thirds of the lands. The use of slaves co concurrently suggests the reference to land in the sense could imply physical ownership. 
it is difficult to identify the idea of a tax revenue instead of land here. And there's also clothes containing information on a physical property such as the slave. Title 54, there's also reference to barbarians and which hospitality signed him. This is again using the language of hospitalitas, which is mostly not present in the evidence found in Cassiodorus's Variae. Similarly, this clause also states that land should not be taken away contrary to the gift. The language here suggests it was a one-off gift and it is difficult to suggest that it could mean a permanent tax revenue. Title 55 also mentions the law of hospitality, which again raises the question of whether this should be interpreted as meaning temporary or permanent settlement. Perhaps one of the strongest indicators of some sort of land-based arrangement comes with the statement, you have a guests of the contestants not being involved in the call. Once again, it is difficult to see how this language of guests or hospitality could be interpreted meaning something other than a land settlement. However, there's not much to go on in the court. And to show if this arrangement is permanent or temporary, we're also faced with another dilemma. Can we put trust in the source that what it is saying is accurate? Like, like the Visigothic Codes, Tales 54 and 55 of the Burgundian text survive in much later copies. At the same time, it provides some of the most detailed evidence on the process of settlement for the Burgundians. This, of course, once again shows how the debate surrounding barbarian settlements is ultimately of historiographical concern, ultimately about how one should approach the evidence that is available. A number of writers and chroniclers have also pointed towards the possibility of a land settlement. Prosper of Aquitaine and Hydatius describe the handing over of land, whereas the Gallic Chronicle 452 describes how Salpaudia was given to the remnants of Burgundians who had been defeated by Aetius to be divided with the native inhabitants. Wood has highlighted a number of problems with source. For example, its chronology is misplaced and the exact location of Salpaudia is unknown. Therefore, much like the Visigothic settlement of Cove, evidence external to the locals is fragmentary and difficult to use when trying to discuss the settlement of Burgundians. However, we should be careful making direct analogies between these two settlements. Despite the evidence initially appearing quite similar, and with it leaning towards the land side of the hospitality debate, the evidence found in the Burgundian code is quite different to that found in the Visigothic code. Titles 54 and 55 more directly refer to the settlement of the Burgundians, whereas the Visigothic code tends to only refer to the process of settlement by implication. The point here is that we should be careful when approaching evidence and when trying to find an easy fit or solution to barbarian settlement. This podcast has not necessarily tried to solve any of the problems regarding the settlement of the barbarians in the Western Roman Empire. It has tried to show how the debate has a historiographical aspect, forces the historian to question how they approach and how they should use resources at their disposal. So vastly different interpretations have been derived from a limited base of evidence due to the different ways it has been approached. Second, he has shown that because of these varied problems, it would be wrong to develop a copy and paste mechanism when trying to understand the settlement of the barbarians. 
we cannot simply create a general explanation for barbar and so on with the evidence available. So focusing on the individual contexts of our Ostrogothic, Visigothic and Burgundian accommodations is not only a necessity, but also good historical practice.